Okay, let's take our Bibles and open it to the book of Esther. It's been a long anticipated series, so we have been a long, 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 long time in Ephesians, uh, 60 sermons to be exact, so that's well over a year. You can find all of that online if you'd like, uh, if you have a year's time. And then we did a mini-series on communion with God, and today we are going to start with our study of the book of Esther. Now, by way of introduction of what this book is all about, uh, Esther is one of the only two books in the Bible with the woman as its name, the other being the book of Ruth. And both Ruth and Esther have a similar theme, how God is working during the darkest periods of Israel's history, how God is preparing Israel and really preparing for the Messiah, for the Lord Jesus. Also, Many of you will know this, that Esther is one of the only two books in the Bible that never mentions God's name. Not once. The other book being Song of Solomon. So, but that, the the fact that Esther never mentions the name of God, paradoxically becomes one of the main points of Esther. When God looks like he's nowhere to be seen, when it looks like our world is falling apart, when it looks like God has forgotten or forsaken his people, God is working behind the scenes. He's always at work. Indeed, if you have eyes to see, if as we work our way through this book, God is everywhere. In every chapter, in every detail, God is busy at work. And that's why you could summarize the main point of this book like this. God preserves his people through his providence. God preserves his people through his providence. So providence is just a theological word to mean God's guiding hand over all of history. And that's why last week, uh, many of you were here last week when Marco preached on the biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God. That was an introduction to Esther. So Marco preached the theology. We're going to see it in action, right, of God's sovereignty in action as well. And that theme, God preserving his people through providence, we are going to come back to that theme like a good broken record. Okay, so it's going to be a broken record. You're like, I think I've heard this last Sunday. Like, no, see it again, see it again, see it again. Okay. Now, before we open the first chapter together, I just want to also say, here are three backdrops or three lenses or glasses you need to put on when you come to the book of Esther, how you need to read it. So the first backdrop is you need to read this book in the light of Genesis 3 verse 15. Remember Genesis 3 verse 15, it says, God was talking to the serpent and saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that theme of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the people of God and the people of the devil Being in conflict is a theme that runs right throughout Scripture. We see that over and over and over and over again. The devil has never rested to try to destroy the seed of the woman, which is the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And that's why you see all the baby killings in Pharaoh's time, in Herod's time. Why? The seed of the serpent wants to destroy the seed of the woman. That's the idea. And here in Esther, we will see one of the seed of the woman, of, of the serpent, sorry, Haman, trying to destroy all the Jews, doing the same thing, trying the same plan. Maybe this time it will work. Maybe this time God is sleeping. Okay? 
So that's the first lens. Remember Genesis 3.15. Second lens or second backdrop is you need to read it in the light of Daniel, Ruth, and even Revelations. So other books of the Bible, you need to read it as well. So the events of Daniel, for example, is very similar to, to, to Esther. Because Daniel also occurs where God's people are in a pagan nation. And it seems like the most powerful king in the world is in control. But what is one of the main lessons of Daniel? Remember Daniel 2.21. So this is uh, uh, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, he, God, changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. God has that authority. And then remember when, De- when Nebuchadnezzar thought, isn't it my power that I've gotten this wealth, this kingdom? What did God do? Made him like an animal for seven days. And when he got back to his senses, Nebuchadnezzar said this, Daniel 4 verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does, God does, according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign over all things, including pagan kings. They don't have the final say. God does. And that is why even when it looks like our world is beyond hope, even when we're going to study Esther, it's going to look like God's people are going to lose. God's plan is, looks like it's busy failing. God's perfect purposes works out to the T. That's also why I said revelations. Now, Revelations has as many interpretations as there are here on my head, and that's not a lot. So there is at least a few of them. But regardless of your view of Revelation, there's one theme in the book that also links to Esther. And that is, when you look at from our perspective, it looks like this world is out of control. You see demonic spirits, you see sickness, you see death, you see Satan everywhere. And yet, what does the book show us? The book opens up the curtain that we might see behind the scenes on the throne. Who's on the throne? The lamb. The lamb that was slain. He has the final victory over the devil, over over his demons, over all suffering, over all sickness. Again, so from our perspective, it looks like out of control, but from the heavenly perspective, God is on his throne. And here's the last pair of glasses you need to put on to read this book well, and that is the glasses of the gospel. We need to put on our gospel glasses. Um, Jesus himself said that the entire Old Testament is about him. And so if you've gone through Esther and you didn't see Jesus, you need to read it again. Read it again until you see him. Esther, and that's what we'll be doing as we walk through the story, this story, we'll be comparing it to the greatest story that was ever written. The story of how our Lord Jesus Christ became a man to save us from our sins. With that said, some very excitement in the crowd, I can hear that. (laughs) With that said, let's jump into Esther chapter 1. And this first chapter is going to just set the scene for us of what the rest of the book wants to teach us. And is going to do that by showing us the vainglory of a king. So let's read chapter 1 verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, this is a great king. His kingdom is 
vast. He's one of the most powerful, probably the most powerful, most wealthy, most important man alive during this time. Nobody's going to beat this king and his kingdom, how vast it is. Remember what the context is. Babylonians took the Jews in exile because of their sin. God said, after 70 years, I will bring you back. And Cyrus, the Mede and the the Medo-Persians, conquered the Babylonians. And then he made a decree that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem. But what happened? After 70 years of living in one place, you get a little bit comfortable. If you've lived for 70 years in one place, it's hard to uproot yourself and go to, even if it's your hometown. So many Jews decided not to go. Many Jews said, thank you, but no thanks. We're staying in Persia. It's very comfortable. And guess what? Esther's family was one of those. Esther's family was one of those families that decided to stay in the pagan country, in the pagan world. And so this book of Esther takes place in the citadel of Susa. Look at chapter, verses 2 to 3. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and the provinces were before him. So the historian, Herodotus, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, tells us that during that third year, the king made some very important military plans to, to, to conquer Greece. So this was a year of great military planning and strategizing. And that's why you read in verse 3, right there in the middle, who was also during this feast? It says the army of Persia and Media were there. So this was a, you can almost call it like a business feast. So this feast was very elaborate. Look at how long it lasted in verse 4. While the king showed his riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So that is six full months feasting. Now, don't think when you say six months of feasting that that's all they did. This was 180 days of planning, feasting, planning, feasting. And the generals probably had to come and go as their duties permitted them. But look at what the king is trying to do here. Look again at verse 4 at the beginning. What did he try to do? He wanted to show, he showed the riches of his royal glory. The king was feasting and showing his splendor to impress. Now, why would he want to do that? Now, one, one, one answer could be if you are planning a great military uh, battle, one way to try to encourage your generals and all your, 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 your army is to say, look at how great I am. This, this war is in the bag, Right? I'm your king. Look at my greatness. Look at my riches. I am in control. Right? So that's probably why I wanted to show his greatness. But there might be another reason. That's just simply because he's proud. If there's no secret that when one king uh, takes over from another king, it's, it's almost like a glory contest. You think he was good? Look at me. And especially the Persian kings, like his uh, Ahasuerus' father was Darius. Darius was a great king, amazing king. And no one, he is now trying to one-up his father, one-up his dad. It's like, yes. Remember, even in the Israel kings, they try to do this. Remember the foolishness of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, right? He says, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh, right? Trying to just say, listen, you think he's, he's good? Like, I'm bigger. I'm stronger. And so at the end of this business feast came the official feast, the committed feast for seven days Straight. Look at verses 5 to 8. And again, notice the glory, the splendor in these verses. It says, When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days, 
in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Look at this. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So everything here, everything the king is doing is just shouting wealth, riches. Everything was meant to dazzle the eyes. On this party, there was only one rule. There are no rules. Every man was king in his desire for alcohol. It was an open bar, and somebody else is paying the bill. All right, so it was like they could drink as much as they wanted. And you see in verse 7 that the drinks were served in golden vessels, and then it says vessels of different kinds. Now, that was just another way to show off his wealth. Not even the cups were the same. Like, look at all the different kinds of cups I have. But here's the important detail that you shouldn't miss. What's also happening now is in verse 9. Let's read that again. The Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So keep that little detail in your mind as we go on with the chapter because that's going to become important. Now in verses 10 to 11, we come to the climax of the party. Okay, look at verses 10 to 11. It says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumam, Bishtar, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Okay, let me give some common sense wisdom. Don't make decisions when you are under the influence of alcohol. Okay, that's going to be a mistake. You can almost put that down. And in this case, the ego of the king helped along with a little bit of alcohol, was requesting for the queen to come and show how beautiful she is. Now that is, of course, much more about the king than it is about the queen. The king doesn't care about his wife. He doesn't care about Queen Vashti. He cares about himself. He wants to show off and say, look at the kind of king I am to be able to get a a wife like this. In short, the king is treating Vashti as an object to be consumed by drunken eyes rather than a person with an eternal soul to be loved and protected. Now, you and I shouldn't be surprised by this. Why? We're reading of a pagan king. These, these people didn't fear God. They didn't know God. They didn't know his word. So what do you expect in one sense, right? But I want to ask us, is our culture much different than this? Now, as I reflected upon this, I realized that I think our culture is complicit with the king in our obsession with pornography, with our consummation and obsession with pornography. Think about it. What is pornography other than the lustful objectification of women who ought to be treated with dignity, respect, and love? You quickly feel the grossness of this when you consider that those women on the screen have mothers, fathers, some of them brothers and sisters. 
And then you just see it for what it truly is. Recently, I don't know how many of you have seen this, but I was even shocked how prominent this is, even amongst religious people. There was that famous clip from Dennis Prager, who, in his conversation with Jordan Peterson, said that pornography is good. It, at certain times, it's good because it can keep men from actually committing adultery. Now, he said that as an Orthodox Jew, or as a Jew, who says that he's following mainly a, a, a law-based religion instead of a heart-based religion. But I don't think he's reading his Old Testament correctly. There's so many passages where God says the heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. But let's put those aside. I think that also misses what pornography is fundamentally. It is a gross distortion of what sex really is. It is not what it, it corrupts the mind, it corrupts the heart, and it trains the eyes to not view women as people to be loved, but objects to be consumed. Now, the real problem, like Jesus said, is you, your and my heart. What did he say? He said, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Who of us have not done that? See what I mean? Like, we have all sinned. We have all failed. We are all like Ahasuerus in a, in a sense, where we treat people more like objects than like people to be loved. We are, we are all complicit in one way or another. You see, we need a better king than the king Ahasuerus. We need a better king. And more than that, we need a savior who can do heart surgery on us. What we read next in this story brings panic at the party. That's the title of this sermon. Look at what happens next. This is, you must try to read it in slow motion if you can. Verse 12. Verse 12. It says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Can you, can you imagine it? So imagine, here comes the eunuch. Queen, um, the king wants you... Remember the crown. There's a lot of wine involved. But would you please come? The king is asking for you. Now, can you imagine the king or the queen answering, replying? No. <laughs> now, I don't know if she had a British accent while she said that, but, but can you imagine that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. That one refusal sends panic into the party. Now, can you imagine the king is still drinking? He's waiting for his wife. Suddenly, the, the eunuch comes and whispers in his ear, and, the, and he chokes on his wine, you know, and, and it becomes silent, and everybody realizes, the queen said no. Imagine the humiliation of the king. Imagine what, this is the, supposed to be the climax of the party. It's really the anticlimax, Right? Look how powerful I am. Look how powerful my kingdom is over 127 provinces. Look at my beauty. And he cannot even rule his household, right? He can't even lead his wife correctly or love her correctly. Now, I just want to say on a side note, many people see Vashti as a role model to follow. That this is what women should do with their husbands. They should refuse them. They should not let their husbands tell them what to do or not to do. Now, that would be completely missing the point. If you want to learn about how a marriage should look like, you don't go to a pagan marriage, a pagan wedding, and think, because even what, what the, king, the king should have never asked this, this request, never. 
where do we go? We go to passages like Ephesians 5. We go to um, 1 Peter 3. We go to Titus chapter 2, which beautifully prayed in, in our brother's prayer this, this afternoon as well. There we have to go. God, what, how, how should men and women treat each other in this thing called marriage? And even married to an unbeliever, God gives counsel and advice to if you are married to an unbeliever, what you should do in 1 Peter 3. So there we should go. Instead, what we should be seeing in this text is that God is busy preparing the ground. He's setting things up for another queen to take the place of Queen Vashti. So the king acts in his anger. Look at what he does next in verses 12 to 15. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Koshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miras, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Okay, so here's another rule of wisdom. First, don't make decisions when you're under the influence of alcohol. And secondly, don't make decisions when you're angry. And the king broke both of them in one day. So there's a lot of foolishness going on in this king and in his heart, in his mind. Now notice what it says about the wise men. These wise men knew the times. They were aware of the cultural climate of the, of the, of the times. So I think what they are about to say would have most likely happened. So because they were wise, because they knew the times, I think their counsel would have happened. Look at what they now say to verses 16 to 20. It says, then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Asuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Asuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and they will be contempt. And wrath in plenty. Okay. Now, just, sorry, verse 19, 20. If it please the king, yes, what they say, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Asuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. So what the wise men were scared of is that the example of Queen Vashti will spread like wildfire. But their counsel shows something of their own character. They were not really worried about the king. They were worried about their own families and their own wives when they come home. They're not thinking about, listen, the king's not going to have a queen soon. We just don't want women to be doing these things. And this is why that detail was important. Where are the women during this feast? In verse 9, right? The women are with Queen Vashti at her feast. So all of those men that was there at the feast, their wives saw Queen Vashti's example. And probably if Queen Vashti can refuse the most powerful man alive, surely... They, they, as the wives of the noblemen or the, the army, they can refuse them as well. And that's why they said in verse 18, This very day, the noble women of Persian media will have heard of the queen's behavior. Right? 
And so the king in his angry, intoxicated ego decided that that was a good plan. So in verse 21 to 22, it says, This advice pleased the king and the prince, and the king did as Memucon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man may be master, be master in his own house, and speak according to the language of his people. Now that's a very thick irony. He's writing this edict and saying, every man should be master of his own house. But he himself is not a master of his house, right? So he wants other people to do what he can't do himself. And pagan men, and I'm sad to say many modern men today, think that the only way to get respect is to command it instead of earning it. You see, that's the biblical picture of a godly marriage is we, we show we have respect by our example, by the way we live, not by snapping the finger and um, dishing out commands, but that is a sermon for another day, okay? Now, as we consider this king, the most powerful man alive, we can think of another king who also has authority, who also has power, who also has wealth, and yet has love for his wife, his bride. And we can compare bad kings with the greatest king that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to consider with me just his authority, his kingship, and also his redeeming love. So consider his kingship. In contrast to King Asuerus, Asuerus ruled over 127 provinces. Jesus rules over the universe. The earth and its fullness is his. He alone is called king of the kings. He sets up kings. He puts down the kings. This man displayed his wealth, his bounty. Jesus' wealth encompasses everything. He owns everything. That's why Romans 11.33, listen to these very well-known verses. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? At his ascension, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that that man, Jesus, is Lord, God has exalted him above every other name that is named. In contrast to Ahasuerus, Jesus' kingship is eternal. There's another, another irony you should think about when you read Esther. We're reading Esther. Okay. What I mean is, we're just reading about Ahasuerus' wealth, power, possessions, kingdom. Where are they now? What does this man own now? Nothing. Naked, Asuerus came into the world, and naked he went to the grave. The grave took all of his possessions, took all of his kingdom, took all of his glory. Not so with Jesus. He is the eternal king who never dies. Indeed, he did die, but he rose again on the third day, never to die again. His kingdom is he's from everlasting to everlasting. When every ruler has gone its course and had its little moments of glory, Jesus will come again and he will be the eternal king. And that's why read Psalm 2, verse 1 to 6. Listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
Now, I love this verse. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The kings that think they can overthrow God and his rule, God looks at them and he laughs at them. That's how he feels. That's how he reacts. This world revels in raw power. But now let's second consider this king of kings. What did he do with his power, his authority? Consider his redeeming love. And this is part of his glory. This is part of his splendor. You see, the world says, only if you are on the top, if you are ruling with a mighty iron fist, then alone you are great. But our king came not to be served, but to serve. He was born in a forgotten place in Bethlehem because there was no place for him. The crown he chose to wear was a crown of thorns. And the throne he decided to climb on was a wooden rugged cross for our sins. There you see his splendor. There you see his glory. Nowhere else will you see him most beautiful, most glorified than on that tree. Think of his character. The king has not come to selfishly use women for his own pleasure. He has come to redeem a bride for himself. He doesn't abuse and use the prostitute. He saves the prostitute. He frees her and then he marries her. That's what he does. People like you and me. This king who is our husband doesn't demand respect because of his own insecurities or just to try and prove a point because he is the man. No. He, say, he lays down his life for us and says, follow me. Follow me. His respect is due him because he is our creator and he is our redeemer. He deserves double honor. He's made us and he's redeemed us. And if you are honest with yourself, you and I are much more like Ahasuerus than unlike him. We too are overly concerned what other people think of us. We just want to show our glory, our splendor, thinking, I have to impress, I have to say the right things, I have to dress the right way, I have to have the right car, I have to do these things. We run after beauty and glory and things that the world values and things are, are, they think are important. Think that if we have those things, then we will be respected and we will be honored and we will be somebody special. You see, but like, look at Ahasuerus, look how pathetic he is, really, Right? First, he's dead. Eternity levels us. There's a kingdom to come. And so what you and I need most of all is that this king is to change your heart. That's what you need from him. The king who has all power and all authority needs to change you. He needs to save you from your sins. Listen, as his arms were outstretched and nailed to the cross... So his arms are open to you to come to him right now. For he commands all men everywhere to repent, including you, to repent of your sins, to come to him and to put your trust in him. This is what life is all about. It's not about lavish parties, money, pleasure. It's about serving the king of kings. In that is our identity. In that we find pleasure. Loving him. And becoming more like him. Following Christ is true life. That's true joy. 
And what this Jesus then does is he makes us into his image as we follow him. So now husbands, we can now say husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church. And Jesus softens the hearts of women that they, might, that they respect their husbands, that they submit under their husbands. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can change that heart of yours. Instead of this king being filled with alcohol, filling his followers with alcohol, he fills them with the Holy Spirit. To be not like Asuerus, but rather slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak. We become like the one that has loved us first. So listen, isn't this king good in every way? Doesn't he deserve your utter allegiance, your submission, your obedience? Give your heart to him. He will both cleanse it and change it. And so as we close with Esther chapter 1, we see panic at the party. Everything looks chaotic. But you should see the king on the throne in the heavens laughing. (laughs) While there's panic on the ground, the king is laughing on his throne, for he is preparing the world for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your glory. Lord, thank you that even as we read Esther, that we can compare even the wicked, the wicked kings and how they think uh, is true greatness with the true king of kings, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we confess that we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. Father, please um, open our hearts to him. May we trust you more. May we submit our lives to you. And thank you, Lord, that you not just forgive us, that you cleanse us and transform us into the image that we were meant to be. Well, we give you the glory and pray this in Jesus' wonderful name.